Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast coming at you from Worthington, Minnesota, where the wind is howling. It is bird hunting season and in front of me I've got three guys that just came out of the field after hunting this morning. I came down to Worthington to um, record this podcast with them. And I, this podcast, I've, I've sort of titled in my head, Friendships, Pheasants, and Volunteering. Um, when we started On The Wing podcast, you know, we, we definitely wanted to sit down with biologists and dog trainers and partners and, and tell the stories of all the things that um, make up Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Um, and one of those things that... Uh, or one of the components that is so critical to the organization are chapter volunteers. And along the way, we've had a variety of chapter volunteers on this show. But today, we're going to focus exclusively on chapter volunteers. And around the table here, we have Scott Raimhelt, Scott Rawl, and Kenny Reed. Three volunteers, chapter officers with three different chapters in the state of Minnesota. None of these guys knew each other before they got involved with Pheasants Forever. But now they're sort of, they're connected at the hip. They take hunting trips together. Um, They volunteer together. That's what they're doing here today um, or this weekend. They've got a, a volunteer hunt put together and um, with Scott Rawl and the Worthington chapter and Scott raises the bat signal and Scott Raimhelt and Kenny Reed showed up. So uh, without further ado, uh, who wants to explain how you guys got to know each other? I was a PF regional rep and I came down to Worthington to have the first meeting to meet Nobles County chapter. And there was a guy in the background that was smarting off to me. And in fact, he was asking if I had new pants because uh, I did have new pants and there was still a sticker on the pants and he was just ribbing me and I thought, I need to know this guy. And that, that's how we met. I don't remember that. <laughs> well, it sounds like you. Oh, that definitely would be Scooter. I was only looking out for his best interests, you know. Well, okay, Scott Raw. How do you remember meeting Scott Raymel? Well, I remember that his nickname with me is Cowboy Jack. Okay, he's always been. He always his boots are always polished. He's always wearing a cowboy hat, and and uh, and I met. I do remember meeting him as a Pheasants Forever regional guy, you know, and and. Uh, we just had a rapport. We just kicked off, and uh, and we started. I mean, he knew all the things that I wanted to know that I didn't know at the time, and so it was just kind of a interaction and exchange. And it was every time we got together, I would just pepper him with questions, and you know, trying to get a depth of knowledge that obviously a new guy didn't have. Mm-hmm. And Scott was terribly knowledgeable, and and uh, we just had a an interaction that was just easy, you know, and so we could drive for an hour in a car and never run out of anything to say. And so, it, and it's been that way now for what, 20 years? Yeah, it's been a long, a time. long time. So anytime there's a comedy troupe there, you know, there's a couple of goofballs and that's clearly Scott and Scott, but there's always a straight man. <laughs> that would be me. <laughs> Kenny, you're the straight man. Clearly you're the straight man. How did you enter this group? 
Well, post-retirement, and we'll talk about this, I think, a little bit later, I started as a contractor to Pheasants Forever, and I, and I helped buy wildlife management areas and waterfall production areas. So I came down to Worthington on projects that the Nobles County chapter, uh, you know, got kicked off the ground. And through that, I met Scooter. And we drove around a lot, and, and I think we, it ended up inviting me to a trip right away not too long down the road, and we're in the truck doing the same thing that he was doing to, to Cowboy Jack, I'm, ask, I'm picking his brain because I started with the chapter up in Pine County, and it's all new, and, and that chapter had been struggling, and I'm like, well, how do you do your banquet? And how do you, you know, what do you do here, and what do you do there? In fact, I think he made comments to other folks that, God, that kid has a lot of questions, you know. Right? Am I right? Well, and I think the very first time we were actually in the same place is, we actually went up to uh, and met in a Cabela's restaurant-y thing, and we were talking about dove hunting in southwest Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And uh, him and a couple of his buddies were there. And that was the first time I talked to him. So the second time he came down, he was doing a, you have to do like a, an initial assessment on a property. You have to do a walk around on a potential acquisition. Yeah. Yeah. And I had actually gotten uh, permission from that property owner. They said, we're going to be out there. We're going to be looking it over. Do you care if we hunt there while we're there? Mm -hmm. And so I had to go out and actually show him how to kill so a rooster. <laughs> so and that was, and ever, ever since then, he's been absolutely hooked. Yeah, I think I seem to remember a double with a really long shot on yeah. that one. But, but uh, so then through him, obviously, uh, met, 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 met Scott, Cowboy met Cowboy Jack. And, it, and it, it's not easy meeting a new guy. Uh, Scoot had called and he says, hey, there's this really great guy, I think. He'd be a good fit going on a trip with us. And I'm like, yeah, wait a minute. Yeah. yeah. You're putting someone new uh, in. I mean, this this is a risk. Yeah. And he's like, no, no, no. I think it'll be good. And uh, it was. Mm -hmm. we and now, was that the trip to South Dakota's Buffalo Gap grassland that I'm remembering? I think it was McCook, wasn't it? I think McCook was the first one. You yeah. know, it, it, a really fun thing is it's hard to keep all the trips straight. Yeah. yeah. And I'd have to say that since that original connection was made, we've probably gone 15, 20 times. And literally, I think that all three of us, with maybe one exception, where one guy couldn't make it. I mean, those trips now get planned around three, three schedules, three vacations. And now we pretty much go, I mean, if we're going, it's the three of us. And if somebody else wants to tag along, that's fine. But we make sure that those three people are available. So Scott, Scott, you guys have known each other Almost 20 years. It's been a long time. I mean, and it was through Pheasants Forever, but mm -hmm. between 15 and 20 years. And Kenny, you're the new guy. I'm the new, no, I'm the newbie, oh, without question. And, and this is about four years that you've known yeah, each about other. About four right? years you know? ago is when we did that first project. Yep. And you know, yep. what I find just really, really cool about this relationship is uh, Scott and Scott and Kenny, you guys are not anomalies. These sort of friendships that burgeon out of volunteering with Pheasants Forever happen all over the country. I mean, you guys have to run into some of those people, too. Well, and, and without Pheasants Forever, we never would have met each other. No. I mean, we've got different career tracks. We live in different parts of the state. Pheasants Forever is what brought us together. So career tracks, that's where I want to start. I want to I learn a little bit more about each of you fellas individually, and then we'll come back and get your perspectives collectively on being volunteers, being buddies, and um, uh, what it means to be part of Pheasants Forever. But So let's start. Uh, Scott Ramehelt, uh, you're a former employee of Pheasants Forever. You're currently an employee 
of the Minnesota DNR throughout the entirety. You've been a volunteer with Pheasants Forever. Tell us a little bit about your your career tracks and your life path. Yeah, well, I started out working in agriculture, hedging on the conservation side, and at a certain point, it, it sort of flip-flopped. And I was uh, seeding prairie uh, probably 15 years ago or more, and we had a deadline of July 1. That was a deadline for seeding. And I'd done an all-nighter on the tractor and was sitting in the morning watching the sun come up. And I thought, this is really cool to be able to till land for the last time and have it be prairie. But I wonder how I could make an impact on a bigger scale. Uh, we were doing cool things through the chapter. Um, and, you know, I was, I was able to do this habitat work. But I, I was trying to figure out how to do more. And uh, so... I started watching Pheasants Forever for openings, and when a regional rep position opened, I did everything I could to get that position. And you got it. I did. And, and what chapter were you volunteering with at that time? Uh, Wasika. Uh, Wasika, about an hour, 15 minutes south of the Twin Cities. Um, and then what happened after that? Yeah, I had a fabulous time at Pheasants Forever, best job I'd ever had. Uh, traveling all over uh, the southern half of the state, working with chapters. Uh, every day in my job, I got to talk pheasants and pheasant hunting and habitat. I mean, what could be better than that? Uh, then an opportunity came along with the Department of Natural Resources, and uh, it was a shift, a um, little different responsibilities, and uh, it, without PF, I wouldn't have had that, that door open. And you, you've had an opportunity to do a lot of really unique things at the Minnesota DNR, and your job uh, has changed e even here recently. Well, I, I'm serving in a, uh, I've served in a couple of different capacities. I've uh, headed up the walk-in access program. And uh, I'm currently a uh, South Region Director. Uh, we've got seven divisions in four geographic regions in the state. And uh, I work with the southern part of this. Pheasant country. Pheasant country. Mm. Yeah, and what's stayed the same through all that is I've been, I've, I've been working with the, really the same people as I did with PF, uh, the same counties. Um, and so, I mean, it, it's been great. And you're still a chapter volunteer. Not only do I see you in... Wasika County, where yeah, we crisscross paths quite a bit. Kind of your primary volunteer chapter, but I see in Scott County, I see in Nobles County, I see you at all these other banquets, um, volunteering your time, emceeing, um, running raffles, doing all sorts of things. Yeah, I, I had been doing twelve to fifteen uh, banquets emceeing a year, and uh, have cut back quite a bit on that, and I do about eight now. Um, just, just from a time perspective, but that, that's from the OPF regional rep days. I mean, it, it, it's a cool way to help a chapter out. And it, as you know, you it, it's a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. oh, and the voice. Yeah. I mean, listeners right now are probably going, what a smooth voice that guy has. <laughs> All right, Scott Scooter Rawl. I've known you for a long time, but our listeners maybe don't. Um, tell us your story. You know, I've, I started and I'm going to kind of have a different employment path than most because I've been in the same job for 30 plus years as an independent investment advisor. Um, was a sold cars before that, was always in sales. And and so I've, I've lived in Worthington since I was 14, had the same job. And I mean, what's tr changed for me during that time, obviously my that business has thrived for me. I always said I have a job that I really love and I really enjoy. And when those duties are done, then I go out and volunteer for Pheasants Forever, you know. And so we started at, I, one of my f favorite things to do 
is you go up to some young Pheasants Forever biologist, you know, I, and I meet as many employees as I can, and, and I've gotten to know tons of people within the organization, and I always ask them how old they are. And they say, well, I'm 30. I said, I've been volunteering for three longer years longer than you've been alive, <laughs> you know? And so it, it, I, I was a ticket seller. I mean, just a regular, I called trench diggers. I mean, we need lots of those people that just do the work, you know? And then it, we, we worked our way up and I became chapter president of our local chapter in 05. And then that uh, worked its way into a, a, a seat on the Outdoor Heritage Council and my, my engagement and involvement in conservation and, and wildlife habitat, public lands is really my, I carry around a banner that says I'm the public lands guy. And those, those energies have just kind of expanded my opportunities in the world of conservation. And right now that's just kind of what saturates me. Yeah, what really resonates for me with your story, Scott, and you talk about being a financial planner, and we've seen this across the country with so many other chapter volunteers, it's it's the people that have that ability to make their own hours, the financial planners, the independent sales reps, insurance salespeople, um, uh, car sales folks, people that have the ability to make their own hours and also need to network for their business purposes. Um, those folks often uh, become chapter volunteers and are some of the most effective because they have that freedom and, and to make their own hours because there is a time commitment with volunteering at the level that you guys do. It, it, do you see that um, when you look at other volunteers and talk to other people as well? I totally concur with that. Mm -hmm. You know, I always said that it would be really hard to... to uh, to organize and manage a chapter that was really robust. If you were working for somebody else and got 10 minutes at nine, nine 30 and a half an hour lunch and didn't get done till six o'clock. I mean, back in the days, I mean, land acquisitions and the protocols for that have changed a lot, but we used to meet surveyors and appraisers and landowners and we need to be middle of the day. You need to go at two o'clock to go see that guy. And one of the reasons that we were able to accelerate at the rate we did is because my job allowed me to be able to, shift and jive and move to go to, and make those things happen. How many hours a week do you think you volunteer uh, for your Pheasants Forever chapter, Scott? Boy. Some weeks, a ton, you know, but 10 hours a week for sure. And let me pause here and, and bring up uh, a few factoids about Scott Rawl that, um, you know, in, in his typical humber, humble nature, he's not going to bring up himself, but uh, critical to this story. Uh, Scott Rawl was the 2014 hero, uh, Field and Stream Hero of Conservation finalist. He was dubbed the protector of the prairie for everything that he's done here in southern Minnesota, based out of the Nobles County chapter. Um, the protector of the prairie. He's a life member of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Um, and a fact that is just startling to me when you think about it, um, through Scott's leadership with the, in the, all the good people in the Nobles County Pheasants Forever chapter, they've been able to create WMAs and WPAs, wildlife management areas, through public land acquisitions that connects 12 contiguous miles in this um, community around uh, the Nobles County. So you can walk 12 miles and never leave public ground. And 
and I'm not talking about state forests or national forests. This is prairie, broken prairie, the fastest disappearing ecosystem on the planet. This chapter is connected 12 miles. And another amazing connection is the work that this chapter's done for water quality through habitat protection. Uh, there's a land acquisition here called Worthington Wells. And the work that Pheasants Forever um, the chapter here in Nobles County and through Scott, Scott Rowell's leadership is doing to protect the business community and the water quality around Worthington is startling. Scott, tell us a little bit about uh, the water connection with the habitat mission of Nobles County. I would, I would concur. You know, when you're down in southwest Minnesota, one of the biggest issues that they have with local water supplies is nitrates. And you can remove nitrates from drinking water, but it's really super expensive to do that. And we had a, we created a partnership down here that I think is terribly unique. I mean, there's lots of different partnerships. Ours is very unique in the fact that we, we partner with our public utilities, our local watershed. There's a, uh, E. O. Olson, uh, water resources trust and some other organizations. And we got started in our wellhead area. And they're defined by the MPCA. And, and then there's areas that are considered highly vulnerable, moderately vulnerable, or slightly vulnerable. And what happens in our in our water system here, uh, we went for three years. You couldn't run a garden hose in my town. I mean, water was so scarce. And, and this isn't because of a drought. We have a, a large uh, packing plant in our town that uses a large volume of our available water. And we were able to put grass on those. We, we've covered 95% of the highly vulnerable acres. We've covered about 50% of the moderately uh, uh, vulnerable acres. And so I was talking to our uh, the director of our utilities the other day, and he said, Worthington, Minnesota has no measurable nitrate problems. And he said that is absolutely attributed to the partnership between them and Nobles County Pheasants Forever and the fact that we've covered all of those acres that no longer get any manure application, they get no chemical application. And it's interesting because our water supply here is really shallow. Our wells are shallow. If we get a big rain, three days later, the level in our wells will go up. So we know that our wells are, are recharged by surface water. And so if you had a contamination spill, fuel, chemical, whatever, it would immediately jump into our water supply and all the wells in Worthington are within about two miles of each other. Hmm. So it's not, you know, some municipalities have wells 20 miles apart, you know, so if something happens to one, they can shut that down, do something with a different one. But because our wells are so concentrated and they're recharged by surface water, everybody was really, really motivated and uh, to protect that. And so we, we have since hooked up to a couple of other rural, to let you know how hard water is to get in Southwest Minnesota. We're now getting water from, the Missouri River, which is two hours and 40 minutes away. That's all the way out in Chamberlain, South Dakota. Yep, and we're getting water from uh, up in Pipestone County, mm -hmm. which is 90 or 70 miles away. You know, I used to think that that if, if water got a real critical issue, you know, that we could really motivate people to protect that. But the the answer was initially was just go somewhere else to get it. And now we have a, a, a well a system, a water system in Worthington that, can, that supplies about little over half of our daily usage and then we mix the water coming from other places but the guy told me he says scott hain is his name director of public utilities he said this is the only tap that nobody can shut off because these we get this water from other places you know and depending on how scarce that is 
This is, this is our number one priority. And the coolest part about that is, is we've just added 180 acres of additional coverage in the last two years in our wellhead protection. Additional habitat coverage? Correct. Mm -hmm. yep. And that's that interconnection between those 12 miles of habitat coverage and the water quality you're talking about. Exactly right. That habitat is filtering that water um, before it goes into the aquifer. Right. And we had one project that was that was uh, an 80-acre parcel that was under agriculture, and it was using a lift station, which is like a sump pump to pump the water out of it. And when, when we bought that property, we turned that pump off, and within seven days, there was four inches of water sitting on it. And so that has now turned into a giant aquifer recharge area. So all the water that used to run away or be drip or be diverted away now stays on the landscape and filters in and helps replenish our wells. And so it's a, it's a multifaceted. We I always said that, that the projects we do, you get to go One. shoot a pheasant on it. I mean, that's way cool. And I'm a pheasant hunter. I'm a public lands guy. But we, we uh, plant more flowers than anybody else. We benefit pollinators. We benefit clean water. I mean, it's, there's a whole, I always said, if, if, every, if people, if we could do a great, a better job of messaging what we do, everybody would be a member of Pheasants Forever because it isn't just habitat or going hunting. There's a thousand other reasons to want to participate. Yep. All right. So I want to get back to that in a moment because what my perception, Scott, is what had juiced you in the beginning when you started volunteering with Pheasants Forever has evolved and it's different than the same things that juice you today. But I'm going to get back to that. So Kenny, you're the third guy in this group and you're the straight man. I'm the straight man. <laughs> I have my moments. And so you're the straight man and that probably relates to the law enforcement component of your background. Yeah, there might be something to that. Tell us a little bit about um, who you are and, and uh, how you got to be around this. I, uh, I went to college for music, and uh, I was a musician, and, uh, but I also took a minor in, in wildlife management because that was my outside interest. I, I was a trombonist and, and jazz musician at Mankato State. That's where I went. I didn't, wasn't even planning on going to college, but I got an invitation down there at the last minute on the, the year that I did intend, and, and so that, that was what I was going to do. But it didn't take me long to realize I wasn't that wasn't for me uh, a music career. So I uh, through that wildlife program, I also took a law enforcement introduction to law enforcement class. And I, I have a relative, and I'll talk about him a little later uh, in law enforcement at the time. And and so I I thought hmm, that might be a good career, but I'd like to be a maybe a conservation officer or a, or a fish and wildlife, you know. And but at this time in the in the late seventies. There was lots of applicants, but very few jobs. And uh, so I went through the law enforcement program. I thought, well, it's still worthwhile. And, and I ended up, uh, after graduating, I went down to West Texas, worked down there for a university police department and had a good time, but realized that, uh, that uh, and, I, and besides hunting, I like fishing. Mm -hmm. Well, the only thing down there was the Prairie Dog Fork of the Red River. It was about eight feet wide and three feet deep. And get some channel cats and a few bass out of there but that was it i missed water i missed lakes and i said i'm going back up to minnesota and uh came back up here and and it wasn't very long and i got a job with the saint paul police department and i have a, had a 30 plus year career with the saint paul police department um rose up the ranks and and uh commander and assistant chief of, of the major crimes division and and uh chief sexo at the end and 
had a great career with St. Paul, and, and uh, through all that time, I was a, a hunter and fisherman when I could, when I had time. You know, it was something that I, uh, I love doing. I love being outdoors. Uh, I was blessed with uh, the ability to travel, so I hunted in Alaska and Nunavut and hunted ptarmigan up in, you know, up in the Arctic and, and uh, hunted pheasants here, you know, and grouse. And, but, you know, those were sporadic. I, I just couldn't, I didn't have the time. It was a tough, you know, you work homicide. I worked homicide for a couple of years and there was no time. I didn't have time. But then I ran into, I had a friend through my wife's friend, uh, met a guy and his buddies. And so I hunted with them quite a bit, a lot, most of my hunting for a number of years and hunted North Dakota a lot. And and we had we we did a lot of a lot of good hunting, but like I say, it was those hits, those quick hits. You know, we'll go out there for three or four days, and I might do that twice a year, and maybe get in once or twice, and you know, for a Saturday afternoon, and that's what I had. So I was limited by by the time I could devote. But you're right, Bob. I I needed to do it. You know, it, it, it's an assumption I have, and you're a perfect guy to ask this. Um, my assumption is that folks in law enforcement, there's a high percentage of them that are hunters. Um, is that assumption true? You know, well, I think it's changed a lot. I mean, when I, it surprised me when I first started working. I was down in the, the southwest quarter of St. Paul was my beat. And I never had trouble getting deer season off. And I'm like, why wow, that's surprising me. Because I, when I grew up, my uncle was a Minneapolis copper and, and uh, a big hunter, and he had trouble getting time off. But I never ran into that. There wasn't a lot of hunters. There's a few that I knew uh, from the department. A lot more outdoor-oriented, athletic-oriented folks, you know, but not necessarily hunters. Um, I wanted to be, I mean, I, always, I, I can't remember when I started getting my memberships to Hesons Forever, but I always had that feeling that if I'm involved in this, I want to make sure even though I'm limited by time, I can send in my $35, you know, membership every year. And, and it really, that's what I did until I retired. Uh, and just before I retired, um, I had bought an 80 acre piece up in Pine County. I have a cabin up there and had an 80 acre piece that, that kind of fell into that I had hunted pheasants on a few times. And for for listeners around the country, Pine County is about an hour south of Duluth, hour south of Lake Superior. It's really the edge of the North Woods. Exactly. It's in fact the county pretty much the southern half of Pine County is uh, is more open prairie brushland, and the northern part is all forested. Uh, so it's right on that as you look across Minnesota, where that forested boundary region is. Uh, it's east central Minnesota, right up close to the Wisconsin border. Uh, anyways, I'd had a cabin up there for a number of years. And and to be honest, I'd never saw pheasants up there for a long time. I never even knew there were pheasants around. And then, I don't know, probably 15 years ago, maybe even a little longer, started seeing pheasants around there. And I'm thinking, huh, that's interesting. And I started asking for permission on all the properties around where, where I was seeing them. Could never get permission. And then it, it dawned on me one day. I'm like, you know, this is like deer hunting area. I mean, this is big time deer hunting area. I bet you if I asked after the deer season, I'd probably get a, have a better chance. And that's exactly what happened. 
And the first time I went out, it was in December, and I had one of these buddies with me, and we went out and we limited out. This was this was at the the year that they changed the three uh, the limit to three roosters in December. So that year, I don't can't remember what what year that was. Yeah, I think it was two thousand and nine or two thousand and ten. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So again, it's a, a decade ago. Um, we run out, limit out in hour and a half. Six roosters, big, fat, big roosters. And I'm like, oh, we're on to something here. <laughs> so uh, with my farm, this is how I got. Now I retired. I have this 80-acre piece. And I asked uh, for a farm bill biologist. And, and, and I had told myself I now need I have the time I, I as I'll cue scooter here why do I have the time he wakes up every day with nothing to do and no responsibilities <laughs> there you go <laughs> so retirement is good retirement is good but I said I, I need to get involved more and uh, they do have a, a chapter up there but I had asked for a farm biologist to come over to my farm to help me kind of map out a management plan on, on habitat work and what, what we could do uh, to bolster the pheasant population. And uh, at that time, I'm trying to remember the one, the, he was a farm bill biologist, but Aaron Sanquist, who is now the state coordinator, accompanied him. And they met me at my farm, and we put together a management plan. And that's how I met Aaron, which leads into the next the next phase as a retiree is, uh, is uh, I started getting involved with the chapter, which at that time, and I didn't know this at the time, but was real close to failing. The chapter was about to go under. They had, uh, they had been tired. And uh, so I got involved with them. And, and then Aaron calls me and says, hey, we're, we're going to do this. We need someone to work on getting lands you know, acquiring public lands help us do that. And I, and at first I thought, oh, I don't want to go get my realtor license. I mean, I, I've had thousands of hours of training. I don't want to do that. And so I turned him down initially, and then he called me back. He was persistent and said, no, really, you got to take a look at this. I think it'll, it'll fit right in. So um, I became a contractor to Pheasants Forever, and I help Pheasants Forever and the, and the sellers Pull together these land acquisitions. I, I, I arrange all the uh, appraisals and the surveys, and I'm the communicator between Pheasants Forever and the sellers and help them all wind through this process because it is a, a fairly complicated and, and uh, lengthy process with the type of monies that are used to, to get these uh, acquisitions. So uh, I've been doing that for the last four years. Uh, we've been building our chapter up in Pine County back up. Uh, had some great success lately and, and doing habitat projects and we do our youth projects and it, it's just been a lot of fun. So all the all the connections to public lands uh, that uh, Kenny that you've done and obviously uh, Scott Rawl and, and Scott Raimhelt, uh, those public land efforts have led to more than 200,000 acres of land acquisitions that are now open to public hunting, um, bird watching, hiking, and it's protecting critical habitat forever. And that doesn't even touch upon the um, open fields um, walk-in programs that we work with states and federal government through the Farm Bill to open up. So it's a huge portion of, um, 
what juices volunteers and, and frankly, employees too. So we'll get back to public lands, but what I'm curious about is um, knowing how you guys, what was the motivation for why you got involved with the chapter back in the day? And is that motivation still the exact same reasons that you're volunteering now in 2019? Or has that evolved? There is a different reasons. And let's start with, uh, start with Scott, Cowboy Jack, Ramhelt. Yeah, for me, uh, I, I was involved with a conservation group when I was in my 20s and was pretty active. And I learned that there's a, a kind of a new group that came in that let all the money be spent locally. And that was a different model. I said, you're kidding me. We don't have to send all the money away. I'm, I'm going to check out that group. And it just so happened that group also was into pheasants, which I was too. And so that, that's why I got started was just the idea that, that we had the choice on how to spend the money within our own county. That was, that was a whole new concept to me. And I mean, that 30 some years later, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that I'm, I'm a life member of Pheasants Forever, but I think one of the basic ones still comes down to that. So for folks that are listening, to, uh, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever members, um, or just, you know, you're listening around the country and you're not a member yet, um, what makes Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever chapters unique is through our model the local volunteers decide they have a hundred percent control of the funds they raise locally. So you go to the Waseca County chapter banquet and they raise twenty thousand dollars locally outside of the thirty-five dollars per member which get which gets sent automatically to the headquarters to fund the organization. That twenty thousand uh, is decided upon locally on how best to spend it for that chapter's mission, whether it's to do a land acquisition, do habitat projects, improve a WMA, do a prescribed burn, send the money to, to headquarters to do lobbying efforts for, for a farm bill in Washington, D.C., or in a state capital, do a mentor hunt, recruit um, members through R3 or new hunters and conservationists through R3. The point is through the local model of our organizations, kind of choose your own adventure to accomplish what that local group of volunteers really wants to get done. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of discussion surrounding how those dollars get used. And, and that's pretty cool because like I said, uh, that wasn't the model that I was used to. And, and I'm convinced there's no bad conservation organization out there, but for me, that was a fit and it continues to be. So, that local model is what hooked you, and in 2019, for Scott Ramhelt, that local model of decision-making control is what keeps you coming back. Yeah, I, I think it really is. I mean, Pheasants Forever is, is the habitat organization, and that, that's more than just a catchphrase. I mean, you look at all of the projects that we do, uh, and it's not just acquisition. It's, it's management, it's restoration, uh, all these things. I mean, that, that's a big focus. And, and that's important to me because nationwide, one of the biggest reasons people get out of hunting is lack of access to land. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't knock on the door uh, at Gladys Prem's place like I did when I was a kid mm -hmm. and ask for permission to, to hunt her, her back 40. Right. It's just not possible. And so having places to hunt is huge. And, and Pheasants Fur plays a great big role in that. Scott Rawl, your turn. Tell us about what 
brought you to Pheasants Forever in the first place and why you're still here in 2019 volunteering so much time to this cause. You know, I would, I would agree with you. My motivations early on were singular, okay? Uh, Nobles County Pheasants Forever bought the very first piece of public land back in 1986. So let me just stop you there. The very first land acquisition in the history of Pheasants Forever is right here in Nobles County. It's called Pheasant Run one very first number one land acquisition that took place in the entire country you know and uh mike my, my kid came I, I was a i was a volunteering just about that time maybe a year after that like 80s the you know fence forever started in 82 chapter started in 84 made the first acquisition in 86 so they had just done that when i started hanging around and about five years later i mean I, like i said i was just a ticket seller I was just a helper and my kid was about six years old i have a son twins and my, dad, my son goes, take me hunting, Dad. And I said, well, man, there's really no place to go, hmm. you know? And I knew that Pheasants Forever bought places to go. And so it's kind of interesting because in that, since that time, if you started hunting in Nobles County, Minnesota, and hunted one of our parcels that our chapters purchased, and you hunted it every single day, you, you, in an entire season, you couldn't hunt each of them twice. There's enough spots out there now that you, I mean, literally you can hunt 39 different places and start over again. You'll run out of season before you get to hunt all 39 again. And so after I figured out that, that there was no place for me to go, there's really probably no place for anybody else to go. And so my, my motivations then turned to opportunity for others. I've been a firearm safety instructor for 20 years and, and uh, I was sitting in a cafe in Adrian, Minnesota, and there's this young kid there that had taken my firearm safety class. And he said, I walked up to him, he's wearing orange, and I said, how you doing? I was all excited. He goes, oh, no, and he was really mopey. He says, we're not doing any good. My legs are tired. My feet are wet. I've been out all day. And we never get anything. And Nobles County Fence Forever just bought up an 80-acre parcel that hadn't been signed yet. And what you mean by signed is there's actually signs up from the Minnesota DNR that so the general public knows that it's open uh, to the public. That that hadn't taken place yet on this particular property. Correct. And it wasn't on the public lands inventory yet. And so I said, I, I talked to his dad. I said, you take him, you go down this road, and you go drive down this quarter mile, and you walk up there, you know, and uh, you see what you can do there. And about... Two weeks later, he saw me in some store, and he come running up to me. Said, "Mr. Raw, Mr. Raw, I shot my first rooster on your special super secret spot." <laughs> <laughs> and it was the it was better than if I'd have shot a hundred pheasants. Uh, it was the, the allowing other people who have no opportunity. You know, pheasant hunting to me is is oh, hunting in general is a is is one of those things that kind of can transact income. I mean, you can be a zillionaire or you can have almost no money. If you can get a shotgun and a 12 a box of shells, you can walk out on some public land and you too can be the king of England, you know, which was the only person who used to be able to control the property. And so access for other people, you know, I just was out today. I had a call from a guy yesterday and he said, I'm looking to take this 12-year-old kid deer hunting today during the youth, the brand new youth firearm season. And I said, I tell you what, I got you a spot. And uh, I, he went up in my deer stand this morning on the property that I own, and that 12-year-old kid, within the first two hours of today, harvested the biggest buck that's ever been shot on my property. Oh, right? And I can tell you that I was more, more thrilled that he got it than if I'd have got it. 
So to me, my motivations initially were, I want to shoot stuff, you know, I mean, and now it's, I want other people to shoot stuff and enjoy it. You know, I said that my drive today is the love and appreciation of wild places. Me and Kenny were standing on a, a really special spot this morning and their little garden snake come rolling out of there. When I say, if it weren't for that property, there'd be no place for him to be. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, it, it provides all kinds of bobolinks and butterflies. I mean, public lands are just a jewel on the prairie in southwest Minnesota. So I definitely perceived, Scott, your interest in public lands. Um, I mean, that's always been there for you. But the other thing that I perceived is your increased interest in high-quality habitat over time. And I think back to the first time I probably got to know you. I came down uh, with a KFAN show and, and the Captain Billy Hildebrand for a Saturday morning show. And I think we hunted on a Friday afternoon at your, your own piece of uh, private ground, uh, which you call the outpost. And it was beautiful, beautiful country. And there were a lot of birds there. We had a great time. And that was, like I said, probably a, a decade ago. And then I came back uh, just a couple years ago for an episode of The Flush with Joe Dugan and Ryan Bronson and Travis Frank. And it was uh, with Joe primarily about the history of the relationship with federal ammunition and, and how uh, Prairie Storm had contributed so much back to Habitat. And we did that hunt. Um, that celebratory prairie storm hunt on your property at the outpost. And in that time between that first hunt with KFAN and the second hunt with the flush, I noticed such an incredible diversity and quality growth in the habitat that you had on your property. And I perceived that you've become a bit of a habitat junkie that, yeah, you've always been juiced about public lands, but you are really, really amped up today, 2019, around high-quality habitat. Mm -hmm. I, I always said one of my favorite things to do is hang around with really smart people. Right. Okay, so, I, I mean, I didn't know those things. Jason Garms, do you remember when he was, he was our prairie ecologist, biologist down here, and he, we were, we enrolled the first 17 acres of permanent prairie restoration that or permanent prairie set aside in Nobles County. And we did that in, in 04 and the program had been around since 1986. And it was the first permanently set aside prairie in the County. And Jason Garns came down and he was looking at it and he took me for a walk. And I thought this guy was like prairie God. I mean, he knew every flower, every, we were eating ground plums and stuff. And I'm going like, I want to know that stuff. You know? <laughs> So uh, I take our area wildlife manager and, and he takes me out. I said, take me for a walk and we'll meet someplace and he'll say, this is what that is. And, and you just, yeah. you pick it up over time. And that property now has everything a pheasant needs from, from spring hatch to winter cover. It's actually seeded into four different mixes so that you have uh, nesting cover. Then you have lighter brood cover with canopy for chicks to run around in. And it truly is, is one of those things that, that you don't, if you're a pheasant, you really would never have to leave. You know, and I made a statement the other day. A, uh, uh, we were doing that uh, public land segment for, for Pheasants Forever. And I said, we harvest about 25 or 30 pheasants on this property. And 20 of them are harvested by people that are not related to the parcel. That's, that's me using my private lands to show people what, what 
exists, what can be, you know, and I always said that it's not different than any public land. It's just that there's not much pressure on it. So they can go out there and they can say, oh, this is really cool. And then I said, go there, go to that spot. That one's not signed. You know, there's 110 acres down there by the, by the Bella Wellfield. And so the, once they can get it kind of hooked, you know, they just get that sense of excitement. Then they're there on their own. They can go and hunt. There's like 4,300 acres of public land in Nobles County. Our chapter is responsible for the vast majority of that. Opportunity for other people is what now just rings my bell. All right, Kenny, your turn. What motivated you at the beginning, and is that the same motivating factor in 2019? Well, for me, um, like I told you, I grew up in the city, in the inner city, and I was fortunate that I had an uncle and his son, my cousin, who was about the same age as me, and, and, and they were hunters and fishermen, and so I was able to tag along with them from time to time, and uh, my father didn't hunt. Uh, I, I can remember two times in my life. I think we went squirrel hunting one time, and and I remember going out on I think it was Swan or Swan Lake or one Middle Lake over there in Nicollet, and him falling asleep on a on a muskrat mound. And I mean, you know, the hunting was just not his thing. Uh, but I had an intense interest in wildlife. Um, I loved wildlife. I mean, I would walk the railroad tracks from northeast Minneapolis over to Roseville and, and try to scare up as many pheasants as I possibly could. I just thought that they were the coolest things in the world, you know. But I, I didn't have much access to anything. And it wasn't until uh, later in uh, high school that I got an old beat-up 63 Chevy Impala and started buying duck decoys and you know everything that i could outdoors related and and that was my freedom but it was all public lands i would look i would go over and get a public lands map or an atlas and i would circle you know maybe three or four wmas that were close together and we would load up that 63 chevy and and head out and and I hunted public lands. That was my access to the world of, of wildlife and outdoors, and and uh, it meant the world to me. It meant the world to me, and uh, I, I, I the freedom and the, and the uh, the interesting things like like Scott talks about the garter snake this morning. I, I mean things like that. I, you know, seeing a salamander on the road or or. Uh, or uh, Geez, the other day, in fact, last weekend when we were down here out in the American Bittern, took off in the middle of the prairie. Well, he was trying to get out of the snow and the wind from the storm, you know. But that kind of thing just just trips my trigger. Uh, you know, I just love that stuff. So for me, uh, the public land aspect is the largest aspect of what drew me to Pheasants Forever because echoing what, what Cowboy Jack said, the habitat organization and and whether that's uh, managing existing lands or acquiring lands or anything uh, that was the draw to me and and again uh, I mentioned that I like you know if I'm going to be involved in an activity I want to give a little something back so I was with those two things facets at the at the forefront of my mind that's what drew me to pheasants forever and that's why you know I became an annual member but I, again, I, I wanted to take that farther. And once I retired, I had the opportunity to do that. And uh, I became a life member. The 80-acre farm that I purchased here that we've built a, a lot of habitat to, 
I think I've told these guys, the very first year I had the farm, uh, I knew there was three roosters on that farm, you know. And the next year, after we, we rehabilitated a couple of ponds and wetlands, the next year I knew from just all the time I spent on the farm that there were six roosters there. And last year, uh, well, uh, that, that year, the second year, we put in 11 half acres of, of prairie and uh, did some more work on it. And, and last, so that, that brought us up to last fall, we took nine roosters off there, and I knew there was at least nine more on there. So, I mean, when you do this habitat work now, so now, you know, I'm interested in, in public lands. That's my, 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 my focus. But now I got this piece that's mine, but I'm interested in how do you make that better for the wildlife? And, boy, I tell you, we've been learning. I, I've been picking Scooter's brain because he's been picking everyone else's brain. <laughs> And we learn and, and we get more involved in, in these uh, prairie restorations and the types of plants and, and, and see what the result is. It's amazing. And, uh, and, so, and, and I've done the same thing. I met a, uh, a person here a couple weeks ago who has leukemia, had a real desire to take his 12-year-old son out deer hunting. I said, hey, I got a place for you. And, and I know there's a very large buck on that property or at least using it from time to time and i'd love nothing better for the, that kid to get that buck you know that kind of thing so it's morph just like everyone else uh i'm just kind of into the whole thing now you know what i mean i'm just into the whole thing all this wildlife public lands getting new hunters uh uh i hosted new hunters last year up on my farm and and you know i i that's fun too you believe so much so in this organization that you're a member of the Habitat Legacy Society. Uh, for our listeners that might not know or haven't heard that name before, tell us what the Habitat Legacy Society is, Kenny. Well, the Habitat Legacy Society, and you're referring back to my 80-acre farm, and when my wife and I decided to buy that, um, um, we also decided at that time that when we... Um, pass on that I want to leave a legacy and I want to leave a piece of public land for that kid who was like me who didn't have anywhere to hunt who you know once the transportation situation was solved um, public lands were it and so we decided that and we've you know done the work paperwork to uh, when we pass on that will become pheasants forevers to become a wildlife management area. Wow. Well, thank you, Kenny. That's yeah, that's a you, hell of a. You're statement. welcome. Yeah, it, it, it's it's you know, there's no other way. I don't I don't I have a other way to I wouldn't even think about it. And in a similar vein, um, Scott Rawl, your your wife passed away um, a few years ago, and you did a, a similar thing in creating um, working with Pheasants Forever to create a wildlife management area in her name and that's the very special place you were referencing earlier um in our discussion isn't it it was and and uh uh it, it got we worked with our area wildlife manager bill shooter when they did the planning on that and, and my wife was just she she was a 
photobot took a picture of every insect on every flower and they they flowered that place up it is absolutely covered with flowers there's hardly i mean the grass species are very limited it's almost all flowers and it's pretty doesn't matter what day of the year it is very nice spot yeah it, it, it's a beautiful spot scott and it's a amazing tribute to your to your wife um, all right, so let's transition the conversation a little bit uh, differently here. And I'm, I'm thinking that you guys are the perfect audience for this debate we were having in our office at the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever headquarters uh, just last week. Um, so three of you gentlemen have, for the last hour, talked about how you are public lands champions. I mean, it's clear that you've done so much across this state in particular to create places to go for the general public. At the same time, all three of you folks are habitat junkies with your own private pheasant Valhallas that you're helping nurture Mother Nature to create the best possible habitat on your own properties for pheasant hunting. So public land roosters, private land roosters that you've helped create. So as a pheasant hunter, what is more gratifying to you? Is it that public land rooster that you get in a December snowstorm that's been chased around for months and you know you're you stealthily with your bird dog, you know, you, you work it into the cattails and you make that perfect shot and you hold that bird in your hands and the shot, the sun is shining down and it's like, oh, you know, that late season public land rooster. Or is it more gratifying with that piece of property that you poured your money, your blood, your sweat, your time into? trying to make into this pheasant Valhalla, you've helped Mother Nature create these birds. And when you harvest a, a rooster on that land and you've put so much into that rooster and you look at that bird and you hold it up and say, oh, wow, that came off of something that I helped create. Which bird is more gratifying? That public land, hard-earned rooster, or that rooster in your own little private pheasant habitat Valhalla that you've nurtured and loved and cared for. Which one is the more satisfying bird for you guys? Uh, they're, they're both pretty incredible. Uh, for me, it's public lands. Uh, just because the challenge is greater. I've got uh, in my office three uh, pheasant skins dried and mounted. It was the first uh, public land uh, three rooster limit I'd ever gotten in Yellow Medicine County. Uh, it, end of season, public land, it's tough to get pheasants. Um, I uh, continue to improve my personal property uh, for better pheasants, um, but you kind of hope that you're going to get pheasants there because no one else can hunt it. Uh, you're doing special things for that property. Uh, public lands, it's a little more of a wild card. Scott Scooter Rawl, what do you think? Oh, public lands roosters by far the best. <laughs> you know, and, and the, the, a lot of times people don't understand this. When you take a look across a piece of, of restored 
native grasses. And you've got all this volume, you know, the grass is five feet tall, and you look at all the mass of, of material that's there. There's as much of that material underground as there is that you see above ground, you know. And so when you take a look at like soil health and all of those kinds of things, you know. And so when, I sh when I'm on a piece of public property, and obviously if you're in the king of pheasants in southwest Minnesota, which is Nobles County, okay, um, those properties get lots of traffic. But I, every time I harvest a public lands rooster, I say, if pheasants forever hadn't done what they did, where would he be? And the answer is he wouldn't, wouldn't. be those all of those insects and and I was we were talking about seeing a salamander. Yeah, I want you to know there's something called a prairie skink. It's a little lizard. It's about eight inches long. His legs are about a half inch long, and he can run faster than me because mm -hmm. I tried to run one of them down. He was so cool. I mean, where would those kind of really cool things be if it wasn't for the stuff that pheasants forever does? And so to me. Uh, I mean, there's there's private lands and that th they exist for personal entertainment, personal enjoyment. Public lands, on the other hand, don't exist unless somebody digs hard to make that happen. So this is a good point in the conversation for, for me to rewind a little bit, Scott, and have you talk a little bit more about public lands through the lens of Minnesota's legacy amendment because you have a really unique perspective as a person who sat on Minnesota's Outdoor Heritage Council as it relates to the Legacy Amendment. So for listeners outside of Minnesota, let me give you some background. In 2008, Minnesota voters went to the poll. It was a presidential election year. They went to the polls and voted to tax themselves three-eighths of one-tenth of a percent of the sales tax would be allocated through this vote to uh, better habitat, cleaner water, um, arts and entertainment. Um, so it was the legacy amendment that passed, and it was passed overwhelmingly. I think it was something on the magnitude of 64% of Minnesota voters passed a tax on themselves for cleaner water, better habitat, and um, and furthering the arts in the state. And as part of that, there's a fund dedicated, the Outdoor Heritage Fund, dedicated to better habitat, which Scott Rawl was appointed by the governor to sit on the Outdoor Her Lassard Sam's Outdoor Heritage Council to make recommendations on funding. So from there, um, take us from there, Scott, on on the council in the in how it impacts public lands. They certainly they made recommendations on allocation. I said when that happened, it was like a lightning strike in Nobles County. I uh, you know I went to my very first meeting, um, and I, well, back up just a little bit. I applied uh, online, two or three paragraphs, and I applied, and. Uh, all of a sudden, I caught a call from the governor's office, and it says, is there anything in your background that would embarrass the governor? <laughs> and I said, I don't think so. I think we're good to go there. And I went to our very first meeting, and everybody was sitting around talking about their doctorate degrees in forestry and this and that and all the rest. And I'll never forget. I said, you know, I said, I don't have a degree in anything, but I've ran a native grass drill. I've restored a wetland. I said, we've done, we've gotten our hands dirty doing that work you know and that was really 
my kind of my foundation when I went in as a member of the council. And it was brand new. All of the definitions had to be determined what was protect, enhance, you know, and restore. And so, you know, there was there was lots of uncertainty because a lot there was a lot of people that, well, all that money's just going to go to the DNR. Okay. I mean, that, a lot of people thought that when that passed, they had to, all, all of those entities, Nature Conservancy and DUN, DNR and, and fisheries and all of those departments all come and apply on the same level playing field, you know, and I always, it was quite obvious. I sat on that council for six years. I've been off now for four, but, but the prairie ecosystem is by far and away the most endangered ecosystem in North America today. I mean, there isn't any other uh, element of, of environmental conservation that's that's under more attack. And so I was always the prairie guy. You know, I I, I, consi- I emphasized doing work down there. And then it kind of came down to is who does what the best, okay? And at the time, DU was doing really, really good shallow lakes wetland work, you know, and PF was was acquiring, they called it, it was prairie, there was a different term for it now, it's called accelerating the WMA program or accelerating the WPA program now, but it was prairie rest, prairie something, phase one, phase two. And, and I started looking at who did that the most efficiently, you know, and DNR bills for X and Pheasants Forever bills for X and chapters were donating match money. Mm-hmm. And it just became entirely clear to anybody that could do the math that per acre, on the ground, expediency, efficiency, closing the deal, uh, and the maximum amount of landowner buy-in as far as landowner contributions or, 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 or a little bit of a lower sales price. PF was just rocking the world. Explain that a little bit further, Scott, how Pheasants Forever chapters, local chapters, uh, find projects, uh, find match, and then bring those, those projects to the national organization and how they get done from there. Back in the day when it was brand new, when the Outdoor Heritage Fund had just started, it was in 09, started the first appropriation, I think it was in 10. And uh, we were looking at the, the scoring criteria actually gave you points for match. I mean, on a scale of one to 10, you could get 10 points for leverage for, for money going in. So chapters raised local funds and Pheasants Forever would apply and they'd say, okay. And they had to identify potential spots. So there's this big parcel list. And the chapter says, if this one can get bought, you know, we'll throw in 20 grand on that, you know, and, and then DU or Pheasants Forever had like knock and matches and other things that they did that could participate in that. And so at the end of the day, it was contractors like Kenny and myself and, and Pheasants Forever's, I mean, their, their, their national office is a great big giant warehouse looking building, you know, and these people are efficient, you know, I go there all the time, it's great. And, uh, and so at the end of the day, when it came down to cost, to deliver an acre with chapter cost shares and Pheasants Forever's efficiency, they were delivering an acre cheaper than anybody else could. And so they got, uh, a, at one time, early on, they were they took home 19% of, of the total of the funds that came out of the Outdoor Heritage Fund. Well, and w- just to further explain that, um, it, it, which is because Pheasants Forever could maxipi- maximize the taxpayers' dollars into on-the-ground results, which is what the taxpayers in the constituents of Minnesota voted on in the first place. Exactly Exactly. right. And I said, you know, hire these different groups to do what they do best. You know, it wasn't hard for me to make that differentiation, you know. And so Pheasants Forever is just truly led by example 
of what it takes to accomplish the end result, which is public lands, acres on the ground. And, and that, those were primarily in southwest Minnesota, the 12 counties in southwest Minnesota. They, that program now does projects in the transition area. We even try to, they're even, they're even squeaking their way up to Pine County, which, which, yeah, yeah. which is the second greatest pheasant hunting county in all of Minnesota, <laughs> although it's a distant second county in Minnesota. It's always fine. But uh, it was, you know, Pheasants Forever just does so many things right that it's pretty easy to get behind them, you know? Yeah. yeah, and it's significant too, Bob, that there's a lot of different groups applying for that initial batch of dollars from your Heritage Fund. The very first project funded and dedicated throughout their Heritage Fund money was through Pheasants Forever, and that was the Double Tree WMA, Double D Tract WMA in Pipestone County, the very first piece. We're working on those things up there, you know, uh, that Pomeroy Pastures and Holy Cows, we've been doing habitat work up there to, you know, our sharp-tailed grouse population in East Central Minnesota. Uh, if folks are familiar, there is population in the northwest of Minnesota and then in East Central Minnesota. And the East Central one is struggling because of uh, changing land use practices and, and brush encroachment and, and things. So we've been working habitat projects on those WMAs that you managed or that you mentioned, you know, just for that purpose to open up those grasslands for sharp-tailed grouse and and what's good for sharp-tails is good for deer and turkey and and pheasants uh you know it doesn't matter to me and and my chapter is is coming along with that ride as well as hey if it's good for them it's good for all wildlife so and it's worth noting too i mean that we're talking about habitat and all the great projects we've done in nobles county and an outdoor heritage fund if you look at the 32 counties in southwest Minnesota, only 1.7% of the land is DNR administered. So even though we've got lots of great land, percentage-wise, it's very, very small. And that's why we need to keep working at it. And only 1% of the prairie, the native prairie that was here uh, on settlement, is left. All right, Kenny, uh, before we get uh, wrapped away into another part of the conversation, I want you to have an opportunity to answer the question I asked earlier. Public rooster or private land rooster, which one's more gratifying to you? Well, you know, that that's a hard question. So I'm going to change the answer just slightly from what they told you. And and I do agree a public land rooster is is so much better and and i have my farm and i'm developing it and all that but i'm developing it for the legacy the future and also when i'm a tottering 75 year old guy and i I just can't do these public land things anymore i can maybe maybe walk over there and if i get a hankering you know and and have a chance at a rooster but i will say the public land rooster that i would that i most admire or most treasure is that east central minnesota i I swear they're a little bit larger a little bit cagier a little bit tougher the one one thing that kenny will admit though which he 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 proved this morning oh god is that public lands roosters fly a lot faster they're faster especially in the 30 mile hour wind (laughs) yep and as i look behind you fellas there's uh there's folks starting to show up for the event that you've all gathered here, uh, the three of you have gathered here to, to volunteer for. Uh, Scott, tell me, a, tell me a little bit about this event that's going to take place 
after we're done with this podcast. Of all the things that I've ever done, and I've done a myriad of different volunteer activities for Pheasants Forever, last year we hooked up with an organization called Warriors Never Give Up. And they're in Brandon, South Dakota. And I met the co-founder, spent a morning in my kitchen over coffee and told me about what Warriors Never Give Up does. It's a Christian-based organization that heals warriors with outdoor adventures. And so I said, well, do you ever, they were, they were South Dakota. I said, do you ever go to Minnesota? They said, well, we never really have. I said, well, we got to fix that. And so last year, a Nobles County Pheasants Forever hosted 11 veterans that came from all over the United States. We have them from California, Pennsylvania, East and West Virginia. Um, they came from all over. And these guys were, a lot of them were special forces. And they, I mean, uh, a lot of NATO strategic command people mm -hmm. that were here. And we, I said, we're going to take them out. We're going to take them pheasant on. This is going to be great, you know. And they're coming to Worthington to go pheasant on. Mm -hmm. And so we took them out. We hunted them on, we hunted them on now. Uh, Private, private lands for on Saturday, and then we did a big group hunt together on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I came to the conclusion that, that what I thought was paramount was we're gonna, they're going to shoot a pheasant. Mm -hmm. Really came down to we're taking these guys from lots of different backgrounds who've suffered lots of different traumas in their service, and we're going to bring them all together and we're going to give them an opportunity to engage each other. Okay, So when they're talking, I just... Kind of stand. It's hard for me. I just kind of stand <laughs> in the back. Okay. And and uh, when we were done, we made friends last year that I think will be lifelong friends. Uh, we then partnered with Jackson County Pheasants Forever this year and the Round Lake Sportsman's Club. It's a local sportsman's club. And we doubled the number of veterans that we're offering that opportunity to. They're coming in tonight. We're going to do a meet and greet right here in this lobby with some pizza. Everybody gets to find out who they're hunting with and where they're going. And we're going to take them out and hunt them and Saturday and Sunday, we're going to feed them some ribs and bison sirloin on Saturday night. And, and we're just going to say thank you to these people that make our life so wonderful, that allow us to go out and mm -hmm. chase. And you've got a couple of good buddies here that are going to help you out with this event, too. And, 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 uh, and if, when, when they call, it doesn't matter who puts out the call, we come. Mm -hmm. All right. And as I uh, see more folks... Uh, starting to stream in uh, to the lobby behind us. Um, I'm going to transition to some lightning round questions so we can move through the end of uh, what I had in mind for this podcast and get you guys to your event. All right, so the first lightning round question is about volunteering. All three of you are volunteers, longtime volunteers. You're good friends, and uh, you're involved with different chapters. What is that, uh, some of that, the, the most important um, components or the, the most important component of what you get back when you volunteer? What What's the juice that makes it worth the squeeze for you? Uh, camaraderie. One of the neatest things I think about going to a chapter meeting or, or going to a Pheasants Further event is you can sit at a table talking to people you've never, ever met before, and you don't know if they're an excavator, a doctor, a customer service rep, none of that comes up. It, it's all about the outdoors and pheasant hunting. And, and it, it connects people at a level that we rarely get to connect at anymore. You know, you kind of, I mean, I would have said relationships. When people pay $35 and become a member of Pheasants Forever, they get a magazine 
then they can attend the national convention if it happens to be in their town or whatever. But I can tell you that of all the people that I hang around with now on a daily basis or, you know, that are what I would consider really close friends of mine are people that I met through Pheasants Forever. Les Johnson, mm -hmm. I'm 59, 58, be 59. And he's like 76, and, and I'll never forget. He told me he took me hunting with his worst dog. And I thought it was the best thing in the whole world, right? He said, this dog could hardly fight its food dish, right? But it flushed a rooster. I missed it bigger than Dallas. He shot it. Um, and the relationships that you can develop, I, there's two brotherhoods that I'm a member of. One's Harley-Davidson, and that brotherhood's pretty tight. You can walk up to anybody with a Harley and talk to them. And you can walk up to anybody with a Pheasants Forever sticker on their car and you can talk to them or their truck. And to me, it's that openness of those people that just allow you to, you volunteer, you meet some people, then you broaden out and you meet Scott Rainholtz and different people. And, and it, it's truly been a life-changing deal for me. Yeah. For me, I, and I don't disagree at all with what they're saying and camaraderie and relationships, but it's also, I, I think as individuals when they volunteer at an event or at a, a youth hunt or something i believe they all walk away with a flush of pleasure of doing something bigger than themselves and and i do i i feel that uh, i feel that in my my work with these land acquisitions i mean when we conclude one successfully and it's come but i feel great about that when we do a youth hunt i know that the volunteers in our chapter love doing them because of the way it makes them feel afterwards like they they did something more bigger uh better than themselves you know uh and, and i know that's why they love doing it and uh so yeah so the volunteering aspect the relationships in the chapter meetings and those kind of things are big but i think when you get to those events it's it's more and and uh and that's that's where i see it and reflected in my chapter volunteers their eyes when we're done i they just feel God, they just feel so good about themselves and, and what they did for those kids or you know whoever whatever the event is and i'm sure when we walk out of here sunday afternoon uh after having the experience that we're going to have here in the next day and a half with these with these veterans I know I'm gonna. I know I'm gonna feel that flush of pleasure of, wow! I was just, I just did something way bigger than me. Uh, so the, you've taken me exactly where I wanted to go with this next lightning round question, and that's when you look back on you know your decades worth of volunteering on behalf of Pheasants Forever. What's that one project or that one event that you look back on and say, you know that? was the crown jewel of my accomplishments in my volunteering with Pheasants Forever. What's, what's, what's that one thing that stands out to you? Uh, for me, it, and I referenced this already, it was uh, the Double D Tract, Pipestone County. Uh, I'd been doing acquisitions as part of my regional rep job, and, and every acquisition is cool because you're, you're creating something out of nothing that's going to positively impact people for generations that want to hunt. Uh, this one in particular, because this is a new source of funds, there were lots and lots of groups out there uh, trying to get the, their projects uh, done. Pheasants Forever has got so many shovel-ready projects, I mean, and, and just knew how to do it. And so to be part of that, it wasn't just a land dedication. It wasn't just a tribute to the person who helped uh, contribute to uh, his land, but it, it was something brand new in the state. Scott Rawl? I probably don't have one, but I have an episode 
a multiple, multiples of the same episode. When I take my dog out onto a new public property that we helped acquire, and I shoot my first rooster off of that spot, I take a picture of that and I say, and I, and I save those and say, each time I can go out and I said, if you can stand on it, if you can smell it, you can feel it, that satisfaction is undescribable. And so each rooster off of each new public land would be the thing that says, I've made it where I want to go. Uh, that's a really cool way of thinking about it, Scott. How many dogs does that, uh, does that span for you? Just about lost one this last weekend, but uh, I would say probably six or seven. Kenny, what's been your crown jewel so far? You know, I like them all, Bob. I would say I would, I'm gonna I'm gonna borrow a line from Scooter. Scooter would tell you he would say uh, I, I I always would say that there's a enough when there's enough public land is when all the water is flowing clear and there's pheasants and ducks flying everywhere. Then I'd be satisfied, right? Something along those lines. You, people. He's much more eloquent than I am, but uh, we're not there. And and so I, I enjoy and 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 feel good about all of them things. But I'm still motivated. I'm still motivated for where we can be. All right. As we move to the final question of the lightning round, I want to ask you uh, three guys with long history of hunting public lands to give. Those uh, newer upland hunters, one piece of sage advice for putting a rooster off public land and slipping that bird into their vest. One bit of advice. What would you tell them? Uh, For me, one word, prepare. Uh, You've got to be in shape. Your dog's got to be in shape. You've got to be used to your gun. You've got to do scouting. If you don't prepare, and most hunters don't, uh, you're not going to have the level of success. Hard surface road avoidance. <laughs> Hard surface road avoidance. When people, when we have people come down to Southwest Minnesota, they many, many of them leave out of the metropolitan area. They drive down till they hit the first cluster of public lands, and those areas just get tons and tons of pressure. I always said people check up in Cottonwood County and and uh, those counties north of me. They don't get all the way here. And so even when you get all the way to Nobles County, there's people that say, well, I don't want to get mud in my car. You know, I borrowed my wife's SUV. Okay. And so you make sure that you drive as far to, to public lands or as far off an oil road as you can possibly find because they will have less pressure and give a new hunter a better, a better odds bag of a bird. Yeah, that, that's good advice. Uh, Kenny, what's yours? That was a unique label, don't you think? Hard surface. It was good, though, yeah. Yeah, I I was wondering where he was going with it, but it's really good advice because if you go one hour outside of the Twin Cities, you know, you'll find some birds, but a lot of hunters. You go two hours, lots more birds. You go three hours all the way to Nobles County, you lose a lot of the hunters. And, you know, Scott, you're right, a lot more birds. You're right. He's No, it was good. I just, where did he come up with that title? Uh, Play the wind. Is I mean it's the biggest thing. Uh, actually, I overplayed the wind. I I I was I the wind was we were in going in into the wind. I know I know. I I overthunk it today, but uh, no, I was actually uh, and I say that because I've seen so many people make the mistake. Uh, I was at a, a wildlife management area uh, a few years ago that uh, I watched this young man with his dog, and they came into it 
with the wind at their back, and I watched them chase 17, and I count them, 17 different birds off of that property onto the neighboring private land. And I'd hunted that property a lot, and so I knew the best way was to, you can park there, but walk your way around and come in from the other side. Then, you, then you're going to keep the birds on. Even if you flush them ahead, of, you know, they get out ahead of you, they're at least going to stay on the property. you got another chance at them. And, and I, I wandered up to them, and I was worried about doing it because I didn't want to seem like a, a, a you know, a know-it-all. And, uh, but I said, hey, you see any pheasants? You know, he says, no. I said, well, I'm going to tell you something. I said, you take it for what it's worth. I said, but I watch you. You guys chased 17 pheasants in front of you that busted out before you even got close, and they're all on private land now. And I said, and, and really, I said, if you play the wind, if you would have walked over here and come into it in the wind, you would have get you would have gotten some birds, no doubt about it. So, so plan your action if you're hunting public land. Keep the wind in mind. Plan that so that you're as much as you can be playing into the wind. That's really good advice. Actually, I all three of you guys provide a really good advice for the. Um, newer public land bird hunters so thanks for sharing that with us and as I look behind you there's there's more folks showing up for the very important and uh, hopefully pretty fun event you guys got coming up so um, I'm going to wrap up this episode so you can get to your guests Uh, but before I do I want to say personally and on behalf of the organization Scott Ramehelt, Scott Rawl and Kenny Reed thank you so much for what you do as volunteers on behalf of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. It's critically important uh, for public lands, for quality habitat, for cleaner waters, uh, and it's good for the soul, as clearly all three of you guys know. But thank you for all you do. Uh, Folks, if you're listening out there and you want to get involved with your local chapter, and I hope you do after listening to these, the passion just bleeding out of these guys, uh, go to the website, pheasantsforever.org, quailforever.org. Find your local chapter. If you're having any trouble at all, hit me up with an email, bobs at pheasantsforever.org or bobs at quailforever.org, and I will find your regional rep in your local chapter and get you connected to get involved as a volunteer. Um, Again, we need volunteers. We need members. So please take that step and get involved in the noble cause of wildlife habitat conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of On the Wing Podcast. Lace up those Irish setter boots and go out and experience the uplands. All right, folks, I will talk to you next episode of On the Wing Podcast. Thank you for listening.